Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Hello, everyone. I am Patrick Beeman, host of the Inside the Boards podcast and ITB's chief question officer. Today, it's an episode with Chris Semino, the chief medical officer and vice president of Kaplan Medical, and Chase DeMarco, our own host of the Medical Nemonist podcast dedicated to teaching you accelerated learning techniques and memory hacks and things to help you retain what you study. So before we get into that, here is a surgery question. And you can get more surgery learning on our Study Smarter podcast. We're running a general surgery Study Smarter series on that podcast channel currently, so check that out. A 54-year-old male presents to the physician with a chief complaint of a sore on his foot that just won't heal. The cut has been present for the last month and is at the tip of his toe. There is little pain associated with the wound. He has smoked two packs per day for the last 30 years and resists quitting, although he has been warned about it multiple times due to his claudication. His vital signs are normal. Physical examination reveals bilateral expiratory wheezes in all fields. Examination of the foot reveals a dirty-appearing wound on the tip of the big toe. It measures 5 millimeters in diameter with a pale base and the absence of granulation tissue. No erythema, pus, or signs of cellulitis are noted. Pulses cannot be felt bilaterally but monophasic flow can be heard with a portable Doppler device. All right, let's start with the interrogatory. We're looking for which of the following is the best next step in the management of this patient. Is it A, bilateral arteriograms of the lower extremities, B, surgical revascularization, C, compression stockings, or D, wide local excision? And the correct answer is choice A, bilateral arteriograms of the lower extremities. This patient is clearly suffering from advanced peripheral vascular disease due to his long history of smoking and an inability to quit when advised about his claudication. Claudication is a phenomenon where pain occurs across the butt and legs during active exercise and is relieved by rest. It's due to ischemia, where demand is greater than blood supply due to narrowing of the arteries. The wound described in this patient is that of an arterial insufficiency ulcer, and it is due to a lack of blood supply delivering essential oxygen and nutrients to the wound so it can heal. A lack of palpable pulses and only monophasic flow on mini-Doppler further support these findings. The next step in management of this patient is a full Doppler evaluation of the lower extremities and arteriograms to allow for surgical mapping of the blood supply. All right, short and sweet, right to the correct answer. Now, let's get into the interview. Today, we are joined by Chris Semino, the Vice President of Medical Academics for Kaplan Test Prep and a former Dean of Students for New York Medical College. And we're going to cover some of the complexities and confusions behind the NBME, USMLE, and the organizations that create the test materials and the USMLE test itself. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. So why is it that there seems to be a lot of secrecy behind the NBME and behind the creation of this test material? That If you go onto any student forum, there's a lot of 
speculation about how things are formulated, when new test questions come out, when old questions are removed. Could you shed some light into why this might be? Sure. Um, and, and part of it is, part of it is a philosophy and part of it is, I'd say, a little bit of paranoia. Imagine a test maker for a very important test, licensure to practice medicine, uh, published all their questions ahead of time. Well, we kind of know what would happen. Everyone would look up the answers to the questions, memorize them, and take the test, get a perfect score, and you wouldn't really have tested whether they're ready to uh, to practice medicine on people. So you're not going to publish your questions. You, you want some amount of secrecy around the questions. And you could argue the same applies to how the questions are created or how the scoring occurs. Um, and the question is, how far do you go in that secrecy? And I'd say NBME has gone pretty far in that direction. Part of it is also, I would justify it if I was them, by saying there's, there's sort of a purity in the process by saying, we're really testing how ready you are to practice medicine as you are. And since we can't actually put you in a hospital and watch you practice medicine as, as a test, the next best thing are these exams. Now, you wouldn't know in advance what's going to happen in a hospital on any given day. So why should you know in advance what's going to be on the test or how it's going to be scored and something like that? So that's kind of the justification, but they really take it to that extreme limit and enforce this security on the process and the content and things like that. They do provide some information, but it's hard to puzzle out what it means. Yes, I've heard so many students in the past say, why don't they have their own reference manual or something just to give a little more clarity on some of those maybe confusing topics or topics we're not really sure, should we listen to this resource or that resource? And there doesn't seem to be anything comprehensive like that from them. Yeah, and there's there's two things I'd comment about that. One is they, they publish what they call the content outline. It's a multi-page document with lots of information about systems and normal processes and, and stuff like that, that is sort of the blueprint for what's going to be on the test. And as you look at it, you might be confused by some areas of it. And in part, it's that way because they're resistant to changing it or updating it for a very good reason. They want to be able to show some consistency across years and decades of testing. And so if they change each time they make a change to that outline, it invalidates some of the data on questions that they've used previously. It's useful to know exactly how that gets used in the creation of the test. I sat on two different uh, item writing committees, and, and I'm sure we'll talk a little later about what, what process that involves. But as a, as a member of one of those committees, the first thing that happened was they sent me that content outline, and there were check marks against specific lines. And they said, write 50 questions covering the things we checked on this outline. And so I was free as a faculty member to read that line and say, hmm, okay, I can write a question about that topic. Um, and it could be anything within that topic. That doesn't mean that question is going to appear on the test, but it tells you how faculty are using that outline to generate those questions. Okay. I guess that makes more sense. They don't want to show answers changing too frequently and potentially bringing into question the credibility of certain test answers or questions from past exams. Yeah, it's it's even not so much the answers and the credibility of individual questions. 
as it is the credibility of those subscores. So when they provide a report that says, this is how you did in behavioral science, and this is how you did in immunology, what they mean by behavioral science or immunology is dictated by that content outline. And they want that report to be consistent so that, you know, if the school is looking, we made a change in our curriculum and now our students are doing better in behavioral science. Well, they want that cohort of students, their measure of behavioral science to match the same measure of students 10 years before. So it's interesting that more schools don't necessarily use that rubric to teach their students. I suppose there's a lot of different philosophical reasons for that as well. But being the first sort of benchmark for medical students, um, potential disconnect between medical student curriculum and the MBNE's uh, discipline definitions, I suppose, because it seems to make it kind of more confusing for students than it probably should be. So yes, yes and no. One aspect of this is, and this touches back on sort of the culture and philosophy, some of which leads to secrecy. You will hear faculty members, including myself when, when I was a faculty member, teaching in medical schools who will say, I don't teach to the test. I'm not here to teach you how to answer questions on the USMLE. I'm here to teach you how to be a good doctor. And that's, that's actually what their goal should be and it should remain. It's kind of shifted in terms of what the students need because the competition has gotten so fierce for residency spots that the scores have become more and more important. So you can understand the student's desire to know, well, what will be on the test and how am I going to get a good score? So there's a disconnect between the faculty goal, and, and which is more of a long-term goal for the students, and the student goal, which is more of a short-term goal. And likewise, that carries over into how NBME approaches their secrecy. They're trying to look for that long-term goal as close as possible. And the more information they give out, the more prone they are to people like me, frankly, working for Kaplan Test Prep, coming along and uh, trying to write a curriculum that's more about answering questions than it is about being a doctor. There's another important interplay, though, which is interesting, which is when you say what kind of questions are they putting on the test? based on that outline, it's still coming from faculty, the same faculty that are teaching students. So uh, in one sense, the faculty are not teaching to the test, but they're, they're the same source collectively of those test questions. So NBME recruits faculty from all medical schools, all allopathic medical schools, MD granting uh, medical schools across the country, um, and that's who's writing their questions. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that any one person writing questions, that their questions are going to determine the score, because um, there is this more complicated process in terms of how a question goes from being written by one person to actually being used on the test. Okay, that seems to make more sense. It is an interesting interplay between the schools, the test writers, and then sort of third-party agencies trying to make these reference materials and QBank materials for students. So what does it take, now that we've sort of described the philosophy of the MBME, what does it take to actually become a board exam writer for them? What are some of the credentials they look for? So it's it's a very um, uh, distributed process, both in terms of the credentialing and the recruiting and whatever. Um, the, the National Board of Medicine is the organization that's overseeing the writing of the questions, and they write questions for 
other tests as well, all medically related. Um, and then USMLE is the organization that administers the test and reports the score and reports the eligibility of uh, test takers for licensure. And so it's a little complicated because you'll hear those two organizations named. The reality is, I think, almost everyone who is in the USMLE org is also in the NBME org. Uh, but there's a, there's, there's a whole bunch of legal and, and, and rational reasons why they're listed as separate organizations. They answer to a consortium of organizations, one of which is the Federation of State Medical Boards. And so each state, there's 50 members, 51 if you count, I guess the District of Columbia must be there too. There's 50 plus members that are each coming from each state and they have their own organization, but they have a representative of the Federation of State Medical Boards. That's one key player. Another key player is the American Medical Association. They have an obvious interest in what USMLE does because they're going to be working with the people who get licensed. There is uh, the Association of American Medical Colleges. That's all the schools that are graduating students. There's a com- there's community uh, boards that have representatives. Very complex network of people just governing the organization. So how do they get the how do they get the writers? They work through these organizations. So they will reach out through AAMC, which in turn reaches out to the medical schools and say nominate some people for someone to be a faculty member at a medical school. They already have certain kind of credentials. They probably have an MD uh, or a PhD or or both. They have to be someone who the key representative within that school, representative to the AAMC, uh, thinks would be a good question writer. Often it's the dean of education or it might be the dean of students or it might be the overall dean of the school. And so they will think through who, which faculty they have and, and nominate people. Most of those faculty, if they've gotten to the level of an assistant professor, their CV has already been scrutinized, but that CV will get sent to NBME who will scrutinize it too. I don't know that I've ever heard of anyone being nominated and not, not selected, at least for, for the initial um, use as a writer. So they're all very highly qualified, and so therefore they're presumably qualified to write questions. Having gotten that far in the process, there's a training tutorial on writing questions. This is actually open to the public, and I always recommend students go through that tutorial. You can find it on the NBME's website under Publications. Probably takes most people maybe an hour at most to go through, but it gives you some insight into how well-formed questions are written, but also some of the philosophy NBU has behind writing those questions. Is the gold book, I believe it's called, the test writer's guide? Yeah, there's, um, I don't know what color it is. There used to be called the red book um, that for decades was uh, the Bible. And then I think they came out with another version. Uh, but this is a this is an online interactive tutorial, and for a while they were saying they were going to start charging money for it for people who were not item writers. That's never happened, uh, so it's still available free. I suspect it will continue to be because it's in their interest to encourage people to learn how to write good questions. There isn't anything revealed about the content of the test, but there's a lot revealed about the style of writing questions. Having done the tutorial. You then get this topic list, and that's available also on the USMLE website. And some sections of it are checked off for you know the item writer to be working on. And typically, you're being nominated for a specific exam committee. 
So I was, I was nominated for the Behavioral Science Committee, one of the big discipline uh, groups within step one. And I was then given things checkmarked in the behavioral science section of the topic outline and told to write 50 questions. And some of those questions, uh, actually, I came into the process by a different route, because uh, slightly different route, because initially I was on a task force for end-of-life decisions, so that actually fits better with virology. So I got my training in a smaller group because they were looking for something very specific. So I didn't go through the normal training because they felt like, wow, I already showed myself with that first committee I was on. Uh, but I know most of the other faculty went through this more formal training. So I submit my 50 questions. And then they have an in-person meeting in Philadelphia. And there were six of us, five other people from different disciplines. Uh, I was neurology. There were psychiatrists. There were also basic scientists, uh, so neuroscientists, behavioral research people. But one person on the committee uh, who led our group was also a member of the Step 1 committee. So there's all these committees writing questions, and then there's an overall committee that's responsible for the step one content. So they lock us in a room uh, with a lot of reference books, and we take turns reading our questions out loud to the other five people in the room. You read the question, you tell them what the right answer is. And, you know, we didn't want to play games of, oh, do you know the answer to this question or anything like that? We, you know, it's very collegial. And then they critique it. They critique it for things like, did it follow the style that was in the training? Is the content that it's testing relevant and important? How could the question be made better? And all of those things, there's things as an item writer, and everybody knows this, when you proofread, the best way to proofread is have somebody else do it. Because when you proofread and you have an error or a flaw, you read through it and you don't notice it as well. And the same is true of the concepts in your questions. So I might write a great question. I think this is a great question about this very specific thing within neuroscience. And the other five people say, wow, that's like a cutting edge research topic. And yeah, it's interesting, but that's not what we want medical students to learn. And I'm like, well, I think they should learn it. But one against five, it probably isn't that important. On the other hand, if five out of six think that it's important, then it probably is important. And that's how you get to what the content of the exam really is. It's a consensus process. Okay. Wow. That's a lot of information. So just to sum up a little bit, kind of gone over the organizational structure with the MBME and USMLE being relatively similar in their ultimate goal. And a lot of the people that represent these organizations are kind of the same. And they're made up of many other sub-organizations such as the AMA, FSMB, a few others, uh, a lot of others. I think they even write for uh, veterinary board exams and many others as well. And then uh, separate from the larger organizational structure, you have schools and faculty and administrators that make up these committees and subcommittees that review questions and sort of by majority vote decide which ones stay and which ones go yeah and and keep in mind this is this small committee that's responsible for there's six people 50 questions each so we're talking about a batch of 300 questions there's still a couple more steps before it really counts as a school as a scorable item in the exam okay uh, but 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 there's you know I know I know your audience wants to get useful tricks, not just a lot of organizational connection. <laughs> I'm so, sure they would love that. <laughs> yeah, so here's here's my favorite tip to give to students. And it works really well. 
we just described the process for like, how does the question even get that far? And the key is you get a bunch of faculty to agree that something's an important question. And so how can you know the minds of faculty? Every student has this experience after the lecture to go up and say, yeah, I sat through your lecture, but what's going to be on the test? The faculty hate that question. The reality is for the MBE, that one faculty member doesn't know either. He might think, like I did, that this one topic is the most important topic in the world and the other people don't think it's important, so it's not going to be on the test. So you can't trust the answer of one faculty member. But if you could get a consensus, that's how MBME is doing. Well, it's hard to get a bunch of faculty members in the room and get a consensus from them because they're busy doing other things. But it turns out if you get a bunch of students together who at least know the content partially and then ask them, here's, you know, here's five topics. Which ones do you think are most likely to be on the test? It turns out that they do as good a job as faculty members at figuring out what topics are most likely to be on the test. And it's consistent. You ask one group of students and then you get a completely different group of students and ask them the same question. And they also come up with the same kind of pattern. So you can get a bunch of friends together and figure out what you think is going to be on the test. And you're probably going to get 80 to 90% uh, correct assessment of what the content will be. Wow. I've not heard that before. That's very interesting, especially when you read a lot of content, especially online, where students are always asking, what's high yield? What do you think is going to be on the test? Is this going to make it? Is that going to make it? So it's interesting to see that this uh, sort of collaborative process can be very beneficial for students currently trying to figure this part out. Well, well, that brings up what the flaw in my, my suggestion is, which is students hate working together. Um, Very you know, true. They, they particularly are sensitive to exposing their weaknesses when it comes to studying and practicing. So there's a strong desire to like hide in a library somewhere and, and work on studying for the test on your own. When in fact, and, and there's a feeling like I got through 40 pages just now. That feels like I accomplished something. But it turns out if you spent that same time with five other students or four other students talking through these issues, you'd probably accomplish a lot as well. Students are afraid to do it. They don't want to look stupid in front of their peers. So that's a big detriment to to doing this kind of process. I'm definitely guilty of that. I spent all pretty much all of my first basic science years uh, locked up by myself. So I understand where <laughs> they're coming from there. All right. And we will stop there. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with some more high-yield learning next time.